Looking for a job? Looking for talent? You've come to the right podcast. It's time for another episode of Hiring You. Now, here's your host, founder and CEO of Ursus, John Beck. What's up, everyone? Welcome to this edition of Hiring University. John Beck here again, your host. Today, we are very fortunate and welcome Wen Stenger to the program. Wen is the co-founder of Omni Inclusive and is as credible a voice of any in our industry to discuss the topics around diversity and inclusion. Wen has done a tremendous amount of work, particularly uh, is active in women's mentoring, working with veterans, LGBTQ uh, and resource networks. Before she founded Omni Inclusive, she ran a number of high-profile household name contingent workforce programs, including Best Buy and Thomson Reuters. She has been named as the 2021 SIA DEI Influencer, recognized by LinkedIn as a diversity champion in 2019 and 2020, was also a workforce game changer by SIA. And on top of all that, she is a Six Sigma Greenbelt Certified Project Manager and a retired U.S. Air Force veteran. Thank you for your service. When? Quite a resume. Thank you for coming on to the program. Who was that person you were talking about? That's not me. (laughs) (laughs) Modesty will get you everywhere. I guess so. (laughs) When, before we jump into questions and the topic of the day is diversity and inclusion, give our listeners um, a sense of uh, Omni Inclusive and the work that you do. You bet. So uh, Omni Inclusive, we are a a diversity and inclusion focused staffing and consulting firm. We are diversity owned, so LGBTQ, woman owned and service disabled veteran owned. That's a lot of words that have to like, I have to spit all that out. So we pro- what what that means is we provide DNI inclusive recruiting processes for companies contingent labor programs. We provide contingent labor, EOR, employer of record, payroll services, DEI consulting for the buyers, the client companies, as well as other staffing providers, and the ever so famous direct sourcing curation services, because I've had my hand in direct sourcing a time or two in the past. So let's dive right into the topic of hand. There's a lot of discussion today on DNI in our industry. That's a good thing. I want to get start by asking you just to, to see how you think we're doing and maybe give us some perspective against some of the recent events and timelines. We had an acceleration of discussion around uh, COVID and George Floyd, all good things. But how are we doing from your vantage point in our industry and others when there's social movements, a lot of times you see a lot of talk, but less action. I think we've seen some good action, but there's probably work to be done. Tell us what you, how you think we're doing. I, I'd say you you just about summed that up really well. The past two years, I think it, it's the natural progress of things, but it has been a lot of talk and not enough action. There's no one's hand to smack on that. I don't think that many folks that are per, that are in this world of looking at diversity and inclusion in the contingent labor space know what action to do. But, you know, the talking is what starts. I mean, you have, you have to start somewhere. Uh, And so we talk with, we start with the communication, the interest from businesses to say, we do need to care about the diversity and inclusion of our contingent workforce population, our external workforce population. But then the question becomes, how do we do that? The thing that we, I notice a lot, and I kind of have to remind people of is, how do we do diversity and inclusion for contingent workforce? Most of the how is 
already provided. So DNI for permanent for your FTE and DNI for contract workers is the same. There, it, it's it's all providing a sense of inclusion and belongingness to people. Contractors and full time employees are all people. The question that really we need to be asking is who does the work? Who does the work? So as a as a perm company, the buyer does the DEI collect the data collection, the reporting, the inclusion, the measures, the policies, the the healthcare service for their FTEs. When it comes to the contingent workforce, it's it's kind of a it takes a village process where we need the staffing company as the employer record to take a huge ownership in that, but the data is not for the staffing provider alone. The MSP program, the client themselves, whether it's the various technologies we use, everybody's got a hand in understanding that information. So we understand what things we need to change in our contingent labor program to improve the inclusion and belonging. I'm going to jump ahead because you mentioned MSP and, and, and VMS providers. I want to ask you about what role or responsibility they have to play. I mean, they have access to the data. They have access to the client and the managers that are hiring. They have scale across a number of clients. But the frustration from a staffing supplier is more often not they come to me and say, what are you doing and what's your policy and what's your plan and, and, and what are you doing? And my answer is, well, it depends. We do things specifically for our internal employees. We do things on behalf of our clients, but one size doesn't fit all. And, and one size isn't necessarily even possible in all because they don't may not have the, the tools or systems or resources in place to support something that I was doing or another supplier is doing. Where does the MSP fit? You know, the MSP is going to fit like it always fits as that overseer of the program, overseer of the metrics and communicator back to the client. And that's kind of where that still needs to belong for a program that has anywhere between, you know, 20 to 50 suppliers. A client can't take in the information from every single supplier alone. And they don't really want the information by supplier necessarily. They want the, they want to know where their talent attraction and placement is coming overall for the program. Because it's not just about which suppliers are providing which talent, it's which talent is attracted to IT jobs versus light industrial jobs versus professional jobs on the West Coast versus the East Coast versus the South versus the Midwest. Like those things all play a factor. I really think the MSPs have to find a way to anonymously collect the data from each supplier and put it into a digestible, reportable format for the client. Not letting, you know, nothing that shows us who the clients are, or I'm sorry, who the candidates are. Frankly, that's not necessarily relevant. It's where are we missing the gaps? I want to expand on digestible format for clients and for suppliers. So I think one of the challenges for everyone is how am I doing? right? Relative to my peer group as the industry as a whole, it feels like there's something missing where there's an overarching governing body or something that can provide data to give us some guidelines in terms of what we should be doing, how to do it, and are you measuring up or not? Those are big challenges I think a lot of people struggle with. 
They are big challenges to struggle with. You know, I think the thing is when it comes to the work is understanding who needs to start. And the thing that I've seen over and over again, the past few years, especially now, I'd say maybe two years, we've seen this interest in finally this interest in diversity and inclusion in the contingent workforce space. But I'd say in 2021, what I saw was suppliers saying, when the clients ask for it, we will put the program together. And what the buyer says is when the suppliers have the program together, we will ask for it and pay for it. Somebody's got to start. No one, we're never going to get anywhere if we keep waiting on each other. And so that was kind of my drive to form Omni Inclusive and and set that industry example of we, the suppliers are the ones that have to start. We have to start with tracking the information before the client needs the information. Mm-hmm. Um, what I saw time and time again last year was clients coming to us at the last minute saying, provide us the data that you've been collecting on DNI. And what I found most suppliers doing is saying, whoa, 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 we haven't been collecting anything yet because you didn't ask us to. We can start now, but to the buyer, it was, that's too late. Yeah, We have to start the work before to have enough information for it to be meaningful. And to your point exactly, this can't be cookie cutter. We're talking about uh, systemic discrimination, workplace harassment. We're talking about inequality in the workplace. There's not a way to cookie cutter this. The resources that one group needs is going to be different than the other. One company is going to have struggles to place LGBTQ candidates, whereas another company has struggles to place Latino candidates. Like it's, mm-hmm. And you can't plug in the same things to those communities. Not to mention company size and, and whether you're in their evolutionary state, geography plays a role in this, the type of position that you're hiring for. I mean, there's, there's a myriad of factors that go into this. What do you advise to suppliers? Maybe we do some role play here. We're a 50 person, six-year-old company. We've put a, a policy in place that we we mapped with action and we intentionally said we want action behind it, not just words. And so we've done continuing education for our own internal employees. But what other things do you suggest or what other guidance do you have for suppliers, whether we're 50 people or 5,000? I'm passionate about setting an industry standard from the staffing perspective of all companies. You know, I would love to see a world where all staffing companies provide diversity and inclusion process in their contingent labor. It's just, it's, it's commonplace. But what we have to do to that is bridge the gap between the services you provide for your internal staff and the services you provide for your contractors. So there's this world of where we don't feel we have, no one has ownership of the contractor. The, the supplier says, well, they're really at the company site. And then the company says, but they're your employee. Mm-hmm. I have spent equal time on both on the supplier world and the buyer world, so I'm not super biased, but I believe that the, that the supplier is responsible and they have to provide the services. Most companies are already providing those services for their full-time staff, their staff of recruiters, their staff of back office. Why can't you extend that to your W-2s and then and to your ICs and 1099s where appropriate? You have to look at how the roles that you're posting, where are you posting them to attract? How are you, what's the word I'm looking for? How are you um, wording the job descriptions to make sure that they are not excluding individuals? 
you have to look at your policies, your healthcare. Healthcare and mental health are, are going to be a huge thing that the contract labor force needs to have. And then beyond that, those business, those networking groups have a sense of belonging to work for ABC staffing company, but also know that they have a support in place for gender diverse individuals. It's going to bring companies a lot further along when it comes to candidate attraction and redeployment. Do you think that some of the hesitation or the delay in some staffing companies taking a leadership position or, or putting these programs into place, one is cost because there is, there's cost associated with this. And when you're in a fixed market environment, that's additional burden because there is cost. And the other part is the legality of it. And that has yet to catch up. By law today, especially here in California, we have a mandate about sexual harassment training that doesn't mm-hmm. exist today for diversity. We put our employees through it and it was a similar, although probably better experience that we get from the sexual harassment training, to be honest. But mm-hmm. is that where part of the delay resides in those two in terms of dollars and, and governance? I would I don't say- want, I don't, Sorry, I don't want that to sound like an excuse, but it, we wrestle with it ourselves. I, I would say I, I do hear from from other staffing leaders that on, on the supplier side they think that it has to do with dollars. Now, does it? Is there a cost involved in putting these programs into place? Absolutely, there's a cost involved in putting any program into place. But I do find most leaders are that's the reason they're stopping the work and then spending their money elsewhere. Yeah. In reality, yeah, there's a there is cost involved to this, but it's more a lot of work and governance. Yeah. And having the right person in place to do the work, whether it's someone that you bring on from permanent staff, whether you bring on a, a consultant to help set you up, train the team on how to run it, and then there you go. You'd be, I think companies would be surprised how much of this work is already part of their day. They just don't know to add these you know, five to 10 steps. In other words, if you don't have anyone who owns it, it's not going to get managed and done. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Give me some examples of maybe either clients or people in the industry that are doing things that are working, maybe a little more progressive. Any examples that you can cite of things that you think are are good models for others? Um, You know, one of the things I saw a webinar call recently with Chris Robinson from LinkedIn. And I know for her program that she, from a buyer perspective, they are taking ownership. They're taking a role in the DE&I reporting to give them a base, a baseline of where they are and, and what their gaps are and, and what they need to improve. And I thought that was fantastic. It's really great to see a buyer lead by example like that. I see a couple of suppliers that are starting to try to put together additional benefits, candidate engagement, a sense of candidate care for their contractors to help improve that redeployment and sense of belonging, even though they're, they work for you, but they're at a client site or maybe they're remote, all these kind of things. Um, there's some, there's definitely some things I see folks doing. I'm seeing kind of like a little bit of like a try a little here, try a little there. We'll do a little of this. If that doesn't work, scrap it. We'll try mm. something else. I don't know that I've seen like a, a formula science down just yet. 
What, uh, let, me, let me flip that question around. What aren't we doing? What should we be talking about that seems obvious today, whether it's the supplier or client or MSP? What isn't on the agenda right now that we should be talking about? What's not on the agenda right now is the mm-hmm. how-to. Mm-hmm. We, keep, we are still two years in talking about the why, and I think we've established the why. But it's the how-to. It's the how does this work? This, it, you know, reminds me of my direct sourcing days where we were talking about direct sourcing, and we spent time talking about why. But then finally, the the question came from the audience to me of like, how? Who does what? Who does what? Is the recruitment team do? What does the payroll team do? What does the MSP to your point do? What does the client do? There needs to be a, we have, we, we need, we break down the roles and responsibilities. Who does what? We have to come to a consensus of where is this information held? Is it in the VMS? Is it in a third party solution? Is it in a direct source tool? And the problem is, I don't know that it can be that cookie cutter because there are some tech companies who are ready to have that information in their tool, and there are some who are not. Yeah. So we're not all on the same page here. Does remote work help or hurt diversity and inclusion? Remote work helps diversity and inclusion, definitely. How come? Um, it, because it opens up your market. It opens up the capability of where you can source roles. It opens up the need or no longer need to commute to do a job. That was something huge for uh, my time in Thomson Reuters. You know, the biggest location that we have for Thomson Reuters is uh, in the southern twin cities of Minnesota. It is predominantly a white neighborhood and it is a suburb neighborhood. It limited our ability to attract talent, not only talent, but talent that was diverse because we were competing with like companies that were housed downtown Minneapolis and we were 30, 40 minutes away down south, yep. which I know in some regions are going big deal. But days like today, where there is a good foot and a half of snow, that makes a big difference, whether you can commute to that job or not. And so that has really opened up the area. And especially when it comes to veteran talent, people think seem to think that veteran talent is in every location in the United States. It is not. Your bigger goal of, of attracting veteran talent is the closer you are, honestly, to military bases. Mm-hmm. If you're mm-hmm. in the middle of Wisconsin trying to recruit veteran talent, you'll get a few, but you're not going to get very many. If you're on the West Coast in the San Diego area, I mean, you should you should be up to your elbows in veteran talent. Seems so obvious, doesn't it? And and as a remote company. I I wholeheartedly agree with your comments. I think it's going to be fascinating as things start to come back to air quotes normal and and people are looking for folks to come back to the office and and frankly changing their policy on remote work. I think it's a a real, it's a disadvantage for a lot of companies that are going to put those in-office mandates back with how fierce the market is. In particular for us, we do the technology and creative work. I think it's just crazy. I don't know why anyone would ever hamstring themselves. That that demand, I mean, with the exception of the type of job, because I get it from a manufacturing perspective. Yep. Um, but, you know, for an office perspective, those companies that are demanding 
hundred percent back into, I mean, you're just shooting yourself in the foot from a talent perspective. Why in the world do you need everybody? I don't know if there's a better way for the world to have not convinced us all that, that we're capable of doing our work from home for the past two years. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. And I'm actually waiting for time to march on because I know a lot of our competitors are going to request people to come back and people have had, the train has left the station. It's going to be challenging. When, if you think about five years from now, how, what do you hope looks different um, than where it is today? How far along should we be five years from now? Uh, well, let's talk about what I hope. And then let's talk about what maybe is realistic. Yeah. <laughs> what I hope five years from now is that we'll see strong strides in diversity and inclusion programs within contingent labor. Realistically, what I would see is I'd say the next two, maybe three years, there's going to be companies that roll up that program, but due to unconscious bias, don't run it as well as they should. And I say that from a perspective of if you take a look at diversity and inclusion programs over the past 20, 30 years, the number one group that has benefited from diversity programs are white women. Because before that, as a white female, as as you being a white male, the work world was predominantly white male. And when there was a push, whether it's a voluntary push or a force push, let's say it's a force push, to bring more inclusion into the workplace, that decision, again, was made by white men. And don't get me wrong, I'm raising three boys, so I... I'm all about raising awesome white men. The question was, we have to bring more people in who are not like us, but who is most like us, but not like us, white women. And so that's what ended up creating the number one benefit of inclusion in the workplace is white women. And that took decades. That took it. That did take decades. And the problem is, if we don't call those types of things out, that can continue to perpetuate. In the the years leading up to 2020, I saw companies that were pushing for more women leadership and they were, they want more women leadership. We want more women managers, women C-suite. And I am all for that. But what I didn't hear was we want more women leaders and we will, we are ensuring that there are women of color, LGBTQ women, female, uh, of diversity of women or female. And that's what I wasn't quite seeing. I mean, we're still, don't get me wrong, we're still at, I think it's 8% of the C-suite executives in the U.S. are men. <laughs> or, sorry, 8%. 8% are women. Uh, the other 90-something are, are men. We've got a ways to go. Putting in recruitment program without training your managers on their on how to understand their and remove their unconscious bias or at least check their unconscious bias is not going to get you very far. And you cannot do diversity and inclusion recruitment without diversity and inclusion retention. We've been trying to do that for the past, what, 20, 30 years now? There's mm-hmm. been this focus on diversity recruitment, but no focus on retention. Yeah. I honestly think that part of the great, people call it great resignation, I, I prefer great reshuffle, a lot of it is because of retention. Yep. People are asking themselves, what's my company stand for? What does my manager stand for? And is this the right environment for me? And and now with remote work, because the two go hand in hand, there's choice. I think that's driving it as much as as anything, although people aren't really talking about that. They're talking about, I can make more money or have a lower cost of living if I move to a different location. I wrote a blog on this a couple of weeks ago too. The the answer to this is to become a better manager on Mm -hmm. all fronts. 
So, yeah. I mean, and exactly to your point of the, that whole remote work, the, the question, the thing that I hear is, well, we need to, you know, we need to bring more people back into the office because we're struggling to manage them. Is that the worker's problem or is that your problem? Mm-hmm. You you have to learn how to adapt. You have to learn how to re- how to manage remotely. No, the technology is available. It takes some doing mm-hmm. to train yourself and, and use it in a way that's productive and that fits your environment as well too. And last question uh, before I ask you one or two personal ones about your background, where does AI fit into this? And there are so many AI companies in our industry now that are all proclaiming themselves as the panacea for all things talent acquisition. Where do you see AI fit? I'm so glad you asked me that question. I have an opinion on AI and diversity inclusion. So yeah, I have an opinion about everything, but (laughs) when it comes to to DNI AI technology, there is space for it. But here's my concern. I've I've heard a lot of companies boasting about their AI technology today that uh, reviews the candidate's resume, anonymizes their name, their race, their ethnicity, their gender, takes out the bias for the manager, helps the manager make a hiring decision without their bias, which sounds great. But what did you teach the manager? Have we just let technology do our our anti-racism work for us instead of doing our own work. Now, there are technologies out there that take out that bias and provide the manager feedback to say these words would attract here. This is the information you have historically selected white men for this role. Have you, you know, here here are five women of color who are qualified for the role. Those technologies that provide the feedback are excellent if the manager is going to use the feedback. If they're ignoring the feedback, then what are we doing? So I, I while I like the idea of the AI and what it can do, my concern is that the majority of the population will use it as a crutch instead of a learning tool. Yeah, I have an opinion as well, too. I'll, I'll share it with you. <laughs> I, I agree with you. And I don't think any of the AI tools today can even deliver what you just described, certainly not for our, the type of skill sets that we look for, which there's just, a, there's from the hard skill standpoint, much deeper vetting that typically has to happen. But if you're one of the 20 AI vendors that calls and emails and texts me every week, here's what I'd love to see. I think that AI can be really beneficial to anonymously collect and present that data pattern matching against the things that we're looking for. And I'm frankly, I'm shocked that LinkedIn and Dice and CareerBuilder and others haven't gone out and either developed this themselves or made acquisitions and aren't farther along. Because for us in such a competitive market for a software developer, we know what the skills are and we'll post on all the job boards and we're on at least a dozen or so diversity job boards. Right. Rarely is somebody to go, oh, this looks like an interview job I'm going to apply. We have to go reach out to them, tap them on the shoulder, and say, here's why you should be interested in this position. Yep. I need help finding who I'm going to tap on the shoulder, right? Mm-hmm. AI would be incredibly useful for us because it would, again, help me reach out and finger into those places that I can't get otherwise versus posting. I need something that's creating gravity to me. And I think that that's probably true in most job functions. Uh, quite frankly. I think where AI is failing today in our industry is they're trying to do too much or trying to replace the full life cycle of recruiting, which I just don't think when humans buy from humans, that's possible. And to your point, 
we're doing a disservice to training our managers and, and eliminating those bias and skill sets. Well, and I was going to add, I, I have a house full of Gen Z uh, right now. And what I will tell you is uh, that the, the incoming workforce generation can, they can pick, they catch on pretty quickly when they're talking to a bot and not a human. And when they find that they're talking to a bot, they disengage. Yes. Um, it's becoming a little too commonplace for them. Yes. So there is still a human factor in this, in this attraction and recruitment world that we have to have. I'm all for technology. I love technology. I don't think I go anywhere without my phone, but we've got to use it smartly. Yeah. Amen. I couldn't agree. Couldn't agree more. When last question for you, I just invented a Wayback Machine and congratulations. I have a ticket for you. So we're going to put you in the Wayback Machine to when you first started your career. What one piece of advice do you share with that young when based on your experience and all the things that you've garnered and learned to this point, what piece of advice do you give yourself back then? The advice I would give to young Wen is you are a hell of a lot smarter than you think you are. Growing up in a lower class blue collar family in town, growing up as female, I was constantly told I could not achieve the things that I have achieved. And I believed them for a very long time. And every time I have to kind of remind myself that I overachieved where I wanted to be maybe 10, 15 years ago. And then new things keep happening that I never thought I could do. Yeah, I think I would make sure that she knows to keep going. And when those people say you can't do it, just walk past them. I love the answer. And it doesn't sound conceited a bit. I think most people have that self-doubt and it creeps in. And so I, I, I love it. That's a great answer. When, before we wrap up, tell our listeners the best way to connect with you and with Omni if they're interested in your services. You bet. You can find us on our website, omniinclusive.com. Uh, you can email us at info at omniinclusive.com. And you can also follow me on LinkedIn. Uh, I am very active in the LinkedIn space respond to most messages, post out there pretty frequently. I love it. Yeah. Wen, thank you so much for coming on to the show. Appreciate the discussion and the perspective and promise me you'll come back so we can see how far along we've gotten. And hopefully a couple quarters from now, uh, we, we won't wait that long. Absolutely. Uh, for our listeners, as always, keep the faith, keep grinding, keep safe, and we will see you next time on Hiring University. Thank you, Wen. Thank you.